0: Back to the Deep Focus podcast, part of the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm your host Rodrigo Perez, and I'm also the editor in chief of theplaylist.net. Um, you know, nature is healing, so that I guess means more Playlist podcasts. Uh, I hope everyone uh, out there listening is good, doing well, fully vaxxed, or as close as uh, uh, as you can be. You know, uh, shout out to all the people still waiting to be uh, fully vaxed in the UK and Canada and elsewhere. I have uh, friends in both places that are, um, you know, they're behind. They're seemingly really behind, and uh, I think friends are getting a little impatient. So, you know, I hope they're not going stir-crazy or whatever. I, I hope uh, I hope, get it soon, and I hope you, you can get to restart some normalcy if you're out there in some part of the world where um, uh, you don't have vaccines quite available to you just yet. But I hope everyone's doing well. Okay, on so on this week's episode... It's This week's episode is very different. It's not a conversation I ran, but it's one I'm going to host here in this intro and tee up. Um, this week on the podcast, we have the great and legendary Abel Ferrara, the director of The Bad Lieutenant, The Addiction, The King of New York, and his most recent film, Siberia, with Willem Dafoe. Ferrara is like, you know, aside from Martin Scorsese, the quintessential New York filmmaker. He's like a gangster from the Bronx who made all these classic New York films, um, but in recent years, because his career never quite became what Scorsese's was, and the and the mainstream appeal mostly eluded him, uh, Farrar's moved to Italy. He's called Rome and Italy his home since around 2002 um, for various reasons, uh, getting his films financed being one, but also perhaps in part because it's a place that helped him get sober. Um, maybe he didn't know that that would be the case at the time, but The 69-year-old filmmaker talks a lot about that in this podcast. So this deep focus conversation is with the critic and film writer Charles Bermasco. He's a pal of ours. You know, he writes for the site occasionally. Um, Maybe not as much as I'd like, honestly, but, you know, he's a busy guy. He has written for The Guardian, Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, Newsweek, Forbes, Nylon, Vulture, Vox, Pitchfork. You name it, he's been there. Charles has also, you know, tussled with Ferraro many times before and and as I was unavailable, I'd figure he'd be a a good match for Ferraro and his energy. Um, You know, the director's been known to be kind of cantankerous and challenging in the past if he doesn't trust your intentions but it was nothing but good vibes in this podcast. Charles and and Ferraro got on like a house on fire and, you know, um, they talked about his entire career really from top to bottom, delved candidly into his addictions and getting sober and touched upon on pretty much every major film in his career including his most recent effort Siberia which reteams him once again with the great Willem Dafoe who is a dear friend of ours and you know kind of a constant collaborator this is to my count roughly their 10th collaboration give or take you got to count a lot of documentaries that you know Dafoe sort of pops up in here and there but you know their collaborations uh, started with the New Rose Hotel in 1998, but it's really ramped up in the last decade. They worked together on four 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 Last day on Earth in two thousand eleven Pasolini in two thousand and fourteen, Tommaso in two thousand and nineteen and now siberia and uh, it's a trippy film that I think uh you know he'll explain best in this podcast. They seem, you know, him and, and Willem Dafoe seem to be soulmates. Um, they're, they are very good friends. They have a shorthand, and it just seems like there's a ton of trust between them, which, you know... Ferrara talks about a lot too. You know their kind of process working together. Other highlights in this podcast include some talk about Ferrara's very very early days working in pornography. Um, not something that he mentions much these days. His early scuzzy unhinged New York movies like Driller Killer. His New York crime movies, the classic ones like Bad Lieutenant. And oh, there's this amazing bit about the King of New York and Quentin Tarantino. And <laughs> let's just say Ferrara remains totally unfazed. I won't spoil it beyond that, but. Kind of classic response. There's also a great story about working with the legendary Dennis Hopper, who was who he worked with in the 1997 film The Blackout. Suffice to say, Hopper seemed to live up to his notorious legend in every way, good and bad. There's some um, some good stuff about the very underseen Mary, too, which stars Juliette Binoche as uh, Mary Magdalene. That's kind of, I mean, I don't think it ever really came out in the U.S. Um, it's even kind of unavailable here. It's a really fa- fascinating conversation with Ferraro that I think... You know, for our heads, and they've got to be out there. They'll really dig this. Okay, so sponsor time. This episode is brought to you by Nat Geo TV's Life Below Zero. National Geographic's most Emmy Award-winning series, Life Below Zero, has been giving viewers chills as an audience favorite for more than 150 episodes. The BBC Studios reality series follows a group of tough Alaskans as they battle white-out snowstorms, unpredictable frozen terrain, and man-eating carnivores in one of the most isolated regions in the world. Like the cast they cover, the Emmy-winning crew are some of the toughest individuals in the business and must battle incredible challenging conditions to film in insanely harsh conditions. Life Below Zero is for your consideration for outstanding unstructured reality program, and all other eligible categories. For more information, visit natgeo.com FYC. Okay, lastly, before we join this conversation with Charles Bramesco and the great candid uh, Abel Ferrara, he's just kind of a guy who's got like, he's not, he's the opposite of a phony. He's like got a bullshit meter and he does not suffer fools gladly. Um, fortunately <laughs> you didn't see any of that in this podcast, but as always deep focus is part of the playlist podcast network, which includes be real, the regular playlist podcast, um, the discourse, the fourth wall and more. And we can be heard on iTunes, anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, do us a big favor. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, drop us a comment or a rating as we do appreciate it and, you know, share it, tell a friend, if you dig it, if you like us, tell a friend, share it on social media spread the word you know we would appreciate that too we thank you for listening okay now on to abel ferrara charles and you know him kind of enter mid-conversation about the pandemic and how it's going in italy and oh, oh before i forget make sure to listen to the entire thing i mean it's it's long but it's really good because he also talks about his next film titled zeros and ones which sounds really trippy and stars ethan Hawke. okay happy listening hope you enjoy vaccinated.
1: I mean, the beginning was was a, a, a nightmare, you know, it was a nightmare here. And um, have you been getting back out of the house? Have you been able to go places? You know, for me, uh, you know, I was in the middle of doing a movie. I was editing. I had just finished shooting this documentary, right, about Siberia opening in the Berlin Film Festival. Sporting Life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, have you seen Sporting Life? Uh, yeah. OK, so you get with the point. So we shot all this kind of thinking we're going to have a party movie and everything. And we come back to the editing room and the world's coming to an end. So like we kind of shifted gears. You know, I live like um, I could go to I could get to the editing room. We were cutting um, remote. So in the beginning, life was kind of well. we kind of do. The new film zeros and ones is about this kind of vibe and feeling you know in the very beginning it's kind of scary you know everybody knows you don't know what the fuck is going on i wasn't locked in the house i had permission to go to four or five blocks to the editing room and then i was just doing what i usually do only i'm doing it remote as opposed to everybody being in the the room so we were cutting that film one of the editors are in um brooklyn you know the other editors in uh, another part of rome so it was like that my daughter is like six. She's she was home from school, so there was a lot of doing puzzles and playing inside Batman. badminton. And uh, you, you know, there was a lot of quality time with my daughter, which actually was was cool, very cool. And um, that was that was the extent of it. The summer kind of backed off a little bit, and then when it came roaring back, we put together zeros and ones. So I shot zeros and ones during during between those lockdowns. I, in the lockdown. We we were locked down, but we could shoot because they were letting certain things fly. It wasn't a hundred percent locked down, So we got Ethan to roam the film, the characters wear masks, it's it, it takes place in a in a lockdown situation. So we're able to do this, and then we're back in the editing room. You dig so in a sense. And I'm not a big party nightlife. Going, you, know, you dig what I mean? I miss the traveling though, you know, because you know living in Europe gives you opportunity to go to a lot of different places of course, yeah. that are that are close, and that I usually do that. That I missed. But other than that, you know, I mean, a lot of people had a lot worse than me, so I'm like, and I had a you know, I had a job on top of it, so I'm to yeah. keep it outside. <clears throat>
2: So uh, the idea, I guess, for today, we want to do sort of a broad career overview, uh, sort of go through the big ones, go through maybe the not so big ones and uh, okay. and, and see uh, what there is to see. And so I think uh, in that spirit, the most logical place to start, there were a few shorts early on, but uh, the first sort of feature was Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. Uh, Wet
1: Pussy Cat. <laughs> good
2: good stuff. Yeah. You now, you, uh, one of the questions I had is that you worked under a pseudonym early uh, early on in your career, Johnny, right?
1: No, you know, when we were doing films like that, that was hardcore pornography, you know? So that was like our our leap from university to the real world, you know? And that's like kind of the, um, you know, that's to make it a break it point for a lot of people, you know, especially a lot of filmmakers. I mean, can you survive, in the, in you know, outside of school? We just, that was an opportunity. We took it and we went for it. Is it
2: just that that's sort of the easiest way to get a camera in your hands and a budget to work
1: with? If you're fresh, well, yeah. Well, you know, for us, it's not. I don't know if it's the easiest way. You know, in our our journey, that was there. You know, 1975, New York City, the kind of people we knew. You know, we were as far from movie studios, movie people. You know, I'm from the family. I don't think we knew anybody that even had anything remotely to do with making movies. You know what I'm saying? But they knew the gangsters that were running that business, so it was kind of yeah. Looking back at it, maybe I should have just cooled my jets a little bit and just gave time, time. But I just felt like we had to make the move. Did you actually? And,
2: did you meet guys who were really mobbed up, like actual gangster type guys?
1: Well, my father, one of them, <laughs> he was. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, not he, he was in the light. you know, I mean, kind of like any any um, southern Italian immigrant family and back in this i grew up in if i grew up in the 50s you know what i mean so i mean you know i was born in the 50s so hey you know you could avoid it or you could seek it out and i guess we lived in you know downtown manhattan at that point and um like i say you know i mean everybody kind of uses their family for connections and those are the ones that we had so but anyway that that that, that business was all elite you know i mean that's why we use the I'm using a fake name just to avoid, you know,
2: right. Uh, uh, I saw it in so I actually couldn't find it myself to watch. But in '77, you did a short documentary with Keith Richards.
1: No, I didn't do it in Keith. It was about Keith Richards. I was in San Francisco after we did the, um, the porno film. I went to um, San Francisco, friends of me. Yeah, you know, went to California, you know, to try to thinking we were gonna, you know, whatever. And um, I ended up in San Francisco at the Art Institute. Anyway, San Francisco, 77. Somebody would know. Rosa von Pronheim was there. Yeah, he, he was a, He was part of that German crew with Herzog and all those guys, vendors and Foss Benders. Anyway, so we just made a film because Keith, you know, obviously was our, always our hero. And he had just gotten um, busted in Toronto. With, right, um, that's right. You know, that, with that big smack bus. So was like kind of like...
2: And so the gist of it was kind of... Oh, it was called, yeah, Not Guilty for Keith Richards. Uh, and so- as if
1: we knew, as if we had any idea if he was or not.
2: I mean, it's guilty for spiritually, spiritual, you know, sense. spiritually. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah,
1: the thought of losing him was too much to bear for us.
2: So that brings us to Driller Killer, which is actually, I think, maybe one of my favorite of your pictures, which I think. Oh, really? Holds up really, really well. It's this great. I think one of the things that gets so right is kind of the feeling and the temperature of city life. I I had been in my apartment for a long stretch and the people next to me were doing uh, construction and the drilling all day high, driving me to that same insanity. And so I guess uh, is that sort of a reflection of how you were feeling in New York at the time that this was kind of like uh, all bearing down on you sort of?
1: Yeah, I think it was kind of the desperation of this guy and you know, the, this interaction with all these homeless people, you know. And again, it's like the jump from school to the streets. You know, anybody in our business, for some reason, I don't care who they are, everybody I've met, you know, whenever you finish a gig, you never think you're going to get another one. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just part of the culture of the business. And I think that was about, you know, it was homeless people personifying failure to him. I mean, now, subconsciously, it's the idea of the alcohol and the alcoholism. But I think at that point, it was more how far away is anybody from the fucking street? I mean, especially, you know, in in the world now. I mean, you know, the homeless thing is outrageous. Yeah.
2: I was your first film to, I think, really get into like gore and the sort of practical effects of uh, violence. And I wanted to ask, like, right. how you remember sort of experiencing that for the first time, like working with your first like murder scene? But do you remember what that was like?
1: Um, you know, you got to we approach these techniques, always like trying to pull shots off and trying to pull what you need to do. You know, yeah, every film has its own crazy deal, you know. Um,
2: whether it's murder or not, it's all sort of the same.
1: Yeah, so yeah, it's always something, right? And then what happens is you always perfect it by the time you get to the end of the movie, but then you never do it again. By the time we got to the end of that movie, we knew how to drill somebody big time. <laughs> I mean, we almost killed a few people to learn that, but we got it. And, um, you know, we were just down. You know, I mean, we were... We were angry, and we were like punk kind of vibe. In this was seventy-seven, seventy-eight. So New York was violent then, real casually violent all the time. So we just, I, I guess uh,
2: that and Miss Forty Five are kind of partner films in that way definitely reflecting that same feeling of grit and danger in the city yeah. i guess uh, for miss 45 were you shooting on the street a lot did you uh, get to work on locations much um and i guess where i'm going we only,
1: i mean we only use locations you know we always shoot yeah maybe we stopped for a couple of days and fixed up the apartment that was hers just you know to get it the way we wanted it color wise and but i mean style is the game but you know we're shooting we're shooting
2: real. This is what I'm asking. You know, when you're out there on the street doing this kind of like run and gun filmmaking, do people ever come yeah. by and think that something's actually going on? Do they not realize that it's a movie? Yep. Just think that's what
1: was happening? Yep, all the time. Really? Well, people- I mean that's what all you right. guess what you're going for, right? To create an event that's going to get the reaction. And then it's the reaction in the background that that yeah. makes so many shots. Did you ever find that
2: there were like some of these spontaneous reactions from people that you were able to use that you could uh, bring into the film?
1: All the time.
2: I saw Fear City uh, for the first time uh, very recently, actually, which I absolutely, uh, I loved. I thought it was, was really yeah.
1: good. What you um, love
2: about it? I guess uh, what made you want to gravitate towards a cop movie? Because I feel like up to this point, uh, and I think for a long time afterwards, a lot of this was... Sort of you know low life characters, uh, people who are more interested in, in uh, getting around the law rather than you know uh, investigating or upholding the law. What what made you gravitate sort of toward this uh, cops and robbers? You,
1: you know the deal with that film is Nikki wrote that script way be, way before Driller Killer ah. during this not you know during the non period. Yeah, and Nikki wrote very realistic, total. You know there were elements of Fear City in that script. And um, you know, I tried to get raise the money. I couldn't do it. You know, we're trying to raise a hundred thousand. We couldn't do it. And then somehow, four or five years, five years later, after we tried to do a film about a revolution in in New York called Birds of Prey, which is like, you know, one of our big heartbreaks, of a film that we almost got made. But the, what, what sort of revolution? Like uh, Fidel kind of revolution. You like know. an uprising. Oh wow! Yeah, it's like you know the, the under because the, the, this was now 1980, 81. I mean, New York was like totally depressed. You know, It was, was like you know the beginning of like corporation versus you know street people, and and you know it could have went either way, but you know we just kind of envisioned a people's um, revolt around uh, anyway. But so again, we came close, but we missed, and then out of nowhere. We're in L.A. Anyway, so um, they got this script, you know, and they they wanted to, we were like down and out in Beverly Hills and uh, they wanted to do like this movie. This was like a big budget movie. And, and um, so we kind of, I mean, we had no choice, you know, I mean, we were like reeling from working two years on something that wasn't going to happen. And yes. You know, not happy about doing a script he wrote five years ago, which is basically a slasher movie. So we kind of took it and we shot it in L.A. and we went, you know, with Hollywood Melanie and uh, Billy D. and you know, um, I mean, you know, I, I dig the movie and I'm cool with it. Cool with it. I'm really I guess. Uh, it, but
2: one of my questions is about scaling up and scaling down. You know, this was kind of the first movie that you had done with really big stars, I guess, bigger budget. The way yeah. you talk about it, it sounds like that's not really something that like a director seeks out, but just something that appears to them or kind of that they stumble into that, you know, you
1: just sort of You t- never know where you never know where the bread's gonna come, from. you never know where yeah. the money's gonna come from or how much is gonna be there, you know. So you yeah. just that uh, you have the material, you try to I mean nowadays I'm a little more focused on having a material that I know I can shoot come fucking hella high water, you know. So but in, in that situation, like I said, we couldn't raise a hundred thousand for it. And then all of a sudden, five years later, somebody drops like four or five million. Yeah. Not into my lap because I didn't, you know, I wasn't the producer of the film. But basically, but that was like our, um, you know, we cut our teeth. This is where we learned the whole Hollywood game and what it's about and some tough lessons in that film, but we learned them.
2: So one big thing that I wanted to ask about, another thing that I actually couldn't find, but sounds really fascinating. Um, you shot a TV movie called The Gladiator about a homicidal yeah. maniac in L.A. killing people with his car. How did, you,
1: did in- you see that? Did you watch that?
2: Well, this was something I, I had a tough time finding online. I think um, <laughs> frustrating is that a lot of these are not they're not there
1: to stream well i mean that was like you know i mean that was we did that again you know now we're playing the hollywood game so um this company called me, a guy named bob Rainey and he was financing the writing of king of new york and they were thinking about you know they were going to make king of, new, king of new york at the time was called murder one they were going to make it and while nikki was writing it they asked me would i go and make this tv film for that which I said, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, because I'm thinking I'm going to get this other film made. So, you know, I spent like, you know, it's like learning how to joke people. I spent like six weeks <laughs> crashing car, car. I mean, we never did car chases and car, but but I, I ended up spending six weeks actually. You know, it's one of these gigs you take, and and you know, I met Kenny Wall, who was cool. I met some cool people.
2: Did you get to crash the cars yourself? Do you test drive yourself?
1: I ain't getting. I ain't you know putting myself in that position but yeah sure. we were we, we were working with actually um these fucking cowboys from uh Pacoima and uh, but these guys were all work with Peck and paw mm. right so I got the like you know I got my doctoral in Sam Peck and Paw because these guys were his pros and then we got you know we started really getting into crashing cars and you know and I'm showing him Road Warrior and these are uh, L.A. stunt guys, you know. They're like saying, you know, I'm showing them road war up thinking That's the fucking greatest movie i ever seen. They're saying, yeah, hey, dude, you know, they're filming accidents. That's not fucking stunt work. You know the, art, so, the art is, I like
2: guess, in not crashing the car.
1: Well, the art is not killing somebody. Yeah, yeah
2: getting everyone out of the shoot alive is the first. Yeah, trend. yeah, right. So it took you a while to get King of New York off the ground, right? Yeah. Was it always uh, going to be Christopher Walken or were, you know, over these four years to do- No, see-
1: Chris came into this, you know, I, I never, you know, we don't kind of think actor-wise, you know, we were working on that script and then we did, you know, I was just basically playing a Hollywood game at this point. I forget, oh, we did Miami Vice, I did Miami Vice. You know, it was like, we had the group that makes films, he part of it, but there's the the, the Driller Killer crew and my whole team. But at this point, I'm just like a gun for hire, I'm shooting, glad you know. I'm shooting go to Miami Vice. I'm like by myself, and then I did Crime Story with Michael Mann, and that was by myself. So, but I'm doing it trying to put together. It was it was King of New York, and um, then but we did China Girl. Yeah, I that, love- that 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 was like coming back to New York. I, I love
2: that, because obviously, it's a great New York story. But I also think the move to adapt Shakespeare, even, you know, indirectly, was kind of surprising. Yeah, for done up to that point. Was that Nick's idea to start with? Or was that something you guys arrived at together?
1: Yeah, you know, it's again, it was a, at this point, I'm telling you, we're, we're like, you know, rocking and rolling. And, you know, now we're making money and now, now we're married and now there's kids and now there's, you know, you got to pay for fucking schools and, you know, your mother's sick. And now you're going to be like your normal human being, you know. We're not grown like, adult, yeah. Yeah, you know, we're not living on a couch in a fucking go-go fucking agency with nobody to worry about but ourselves. So what happened was that we went down to North Carolina. Dino DeLantis had built this... um, He built Chinatown for um, Year to Dragon because they kind of told him he he can't shoot Year to Dragon in Chinatown, right downtown Manhattan. So we just said, fuck you guys. He went to North Carolina and built a fucking studio and created a whole industry for the state. I mean, it's crazy. Dino was... He was an interesting guy, you know. So we went down there. The way Dino would would deal with us would be like he'd say to me, "We did orchard a well, whale, and we have the biggest swimming pool ever built in uh, fucking Tunisia or someplace." Do you have anything that has to do with fucking water? So, no, we don't have anything to do with water. Okay. So then we get down there and he shows us. I mean, they built, he brought the Italian guys, I mean, the real Chinichita fucking killers, and they made a beautiful set. I mean, this wasn't a set. They built fucking street, the big time yeah. street. This is what I shot you the dragon. And he said, check this out. Anyway, so we're pitching him king of New York. He didn't want to do it. You know, his thing was like, first he talked to Nicky in Italian, because Nicky spoke Italian. So they have got to the whole thing. And then he knew I didn't speak the language. He just looked at me and say, Nino like me no like so the money guy says me no like you you stop pushing the fucking script so I'm sitting there and this was at a time where like if Dino says yes you gotta fuck a movie this is like a one man band you know there's about five people that's all the green light you need yeah and there's like five people in the world that could do that and you're sitting in his office and the plane back to New York is revving up and you're gonna be on it with no fucking with nothing and knowing there's about 25 people in New York starving to death hoping you're bringing home the fucking bacon man and my mind, you know, I had just saw that whole fucking set. And um, man, my mom worked fucking overtime. And I just said to him, what about Romeo and Juliet in Chinatown? Because you already had the set built. Geographically,
2: it's kind of perfect, too, because Chinatown, a little literally, there's like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
1: But more geographic was he had just built a set that he wasn't tearing down until he shot another few movies. So he just looked at me, says, wow, he liked it better than King of New York. He said, at least it's original. <laughs> But anyway, that was that. Anyway, so Nikki wrote the script. Nicky is a Shakespearean scholar anyway. You know, I mean he's been to university, he speaks old English. Wow. Wow. He's pretty, he's pretty pretty brilliant guy. And I'll tell you one thing about that structure. We went it, we took it scene by scene. You did locked in locked in from beginning to end, that play. And that was one of the few films, one of the very few in the editing room. We never moved those scenes around. You know, it's something we usually do. But in that, you know, naturally, you know, it's him. I'm talking about the
2: narrative is, It's all there. It's all yeah.
1: The narrative has a fucking flow to it that you're not going to, you know, that, that's just so sweet. Oh, yeah. And then Nikki brought his shit to it, and we we didn't do it with Dino. We did it with a company called Vestron, but so we could we went back where he couldn't shoot there. We could shoot, so we shot downtown, you know, Little Italy, Chinatown for real, you know.
2: I um I, I wanted to find out if you had heard about this about uh, King of New York. Actually, there was a podcast recently that Tarantino was on where he uh, they sort of talked all about the movie, and he said it was a masterpiece that he was totally uh, amazed by it. That that's not on your radar.
1: Well, you just told me.
2: (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, I mean, this is is, is a little bit. It is now. It is now. Yeah, I I think that that is a movie with a reputation that has appreciated really well. I feel like. um, to say that any of your movies were on the mainstream is obviously a very relative term, but that is, I think, one of the ones that had a bigger sort of footprint uh, for the public. No? Well,
1: not when it came out, but, you know, later that was like kind of the DCR, you know, revolution. So it's a good movie to rent,
2: we- rewatch, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know what I mean? But uh, but the first weeks in the cinema, there was like, you know... I mean, because it wasn't... They didn't want to sell it. It was at a time when it was like, you know, there was the um, riots in L.A. And you know what I mean? So these um, the distribution guys did not want to try to push what that film really was about.
2: Uh, yeah, they tried to... You be- know, the
1: Wesley Fishburne side of it. But they, they tried to just keep it to the, the the Chris Walken side of it. So, um but, you know, it was a film that, uh, for us, you know, it was our group. It was our group. You know, Nicky wrote it. And, um, you know, he, he finally got that. You know, that started off as a cop movie called Murder One It ended up being about the gangsters. But, the, but you know, Argo was and, and Caruso and Snipes, you know, it was like both sides of, the, of the, the coin. That was the first time we got money from Italy. So, anyway, we got the money, man. You know, and that money came, like, to us. So, this was a film where we had complete 100% control over every aspect of it. it is, and it shows with the, the quality of the movie. It feels like a really full
2: realization of, of your sensibility and what you want to do. You, you definitely get that idea that it's something where you were able to do it completely your way. Uh, and so I guess, was it frustrating to be able to make a movie on your terms with the amount of money that you needed and then see that it didn't really turn that around uh, at the box
1: office, that people didn't really respond to it as much? Yeah, was it was right. It came out, you know, it was still in theaters. It came out in theaters. You know, I, I'm like typical fucking Hollywood dreamer. You know, I think any movie I make when they do come out, like the whole world is going to see th- see them. Like, that's my, um, that's how I kid myself. You know, I said, wow, this film, everybody's, you know, like that kind of bullshit so this is just a reality it came out some people liked it some didn't some reviews got it some didn't get it but films aren't about the first weekend bro you know films are there for the fucking forever you know yeah. and they're discovered forever and if you know a film like that just doesn't matter you know people see it now i mean it's like we made that film up fucking 100 years ago mm. but the people who see it now they, they, and talk to me about it they're relating to it like you know
2: So now we're getting to the beginning of the 90s. We're in the sort of uh, span of time between King of New York in 90 and Bad Lieutenant in 92. Um, I guess if you could put a pinpoint on it, was this sort of the time when you were partying the most, when you were getting high the most uh, at this sort of higher level of success when there were more opportunities available to you?
1: No, you know, I got sober in 2012. So, you know, my disease is progressive, you know, so I went, yeah, the money didn't help the you know we couldn't deal with the uh, success maybe yeah i mean you'd think we'd be happy with it but we we couldn't handle it and um but you know it was the alcohol and that and then it was you know the crack wars you know the crack cocaine hit in new york and uh you know i was part of it you know i mean, I, I guess so. got- reason i ask
2: is because i think around this time bad lieutenant and then uh, addiction in 95 are two of the movies that i think most directly speak to drugs kind of being dependent on them having them as part of your everyday life uh i, I sort of see that kind of well bad lieutenant you know bad
1: lieutenant is like a how-to on getting high you know <laughs> yeah. right? um, yeah. you know when we were kids we used to go and you know, when we were university we would watch you know Duck Soup and you know those kind of crazy movies, but they'd always have the Reefer Madness. You ever see Reefer Madness? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, so that movie would be playing, and it would be you know what that was it was like a you know, trying to scare the shit out of everybody back in the forties on what marijuana. You know, plays like a comedy now. Yeah, one one hit of marijuana take it. and we would laugh our ass there will be a theater full of people laughing their ass off, passing jays around. But that movie was my story. You know, I started off smoking weed and and then you know better weed and real better weed and hash, and then you got the money and then coke and then crack and then he finally graduated to the dope that's and i mean the funny
2: thing about the movie is that it tells a, a true story but just with no credibility whatsoever this stuff happens but obviously not well that.
1: has a lot of credibility to me now you know yeah back but anyway it it didn't you know come to big big head there. we were filming that stuff Those movies just happened to be Nikki didn't use at all, and he actually didn't drink at all, and he wasn't a you know he didn't have a problem with alcohol or drugs. He never did drugs, and and drinking he he just stopped. And he wrote the addiction, you know. I wrote *Bad Lieutenant* with Zoe, but he wrote the addiction. So um, you know, addiction was about a lot of things, you know. But yeah, it was at that period that um, you know. But I mean, I was still fuck. I was still. 15 years from getting sober 17 and so when it didn't like you know didn't like to back off we didn't back off i didn't i'm talking about me you know just it's a tough disease you know
2: i think uh the question that sort of presents itself is uh what compelled you to make that change or what sort of empowered you to finally make that change in 2012
1: and that's a good question. I mean, um, guys around me, you know, starting with Kenny, DP for you know, started with us, with me, and the you know, Driller Killer and all. He kind of pioneered, you know, getting sober. Right? Right, okay. and then it was you know, then it was him, and it was you know, Paul, the actor, composer, Tony, the editor, you know, and it was all around me. The the the, the, the uh, solution. But you know, everybody has their own. It helps to have uh, a
2: network of support, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, but you got to see it. You got to, you know, you got to accept the reality and you got to accept to ask for help, you know, and it's a tough thing because when you're under the influence, you know, it's always a miracle when somebody gets sober because you're always at at your worst, you know, I mean, you're always under the influence of the drugs and the alcohol, and then you find the solution and the solution is to stop.
0: You know, the only that's the
1: solution. Yeah, no, for me, that's the only solution, is you got to stop. And then, and from that point, you know, I mean, it was, I want to say I got to it intellectually, but I didn't. I just was in the right place. I was in Italy, in a place in the country. There was people who really cared about me. There was an opportunity. There was a uh, a rehab, which I could have never a million years afforded in the States. <laughs> I mean, like a place, like it was basically a farm, but there were doctors there, there were loving people there, and I had like, I could be there for like four months, you dig, With the cost of that in the United States is, it's, uh, yeah, it's impossible for any fucking junkie, you know what I mean, so, but Because you need the time. I mean, it takes 40 days just to detox, you know, never mind to actually become sober. And, you know, and then the point of it, I mean, I was a Buddhist for eight years before I was, I got sober and I thought I was a great meditator and a very spiritual guy. But, you know, you can't meditate when you're doing drugs. You're, you're, You're delusional. And then then to understand the delusion that I was under for so long, you know, that I needed that to do what I do, you know, that I gave all this power to drugs and all this power to coke, to to, uh, alcohol, you know, I couldn't function that. And then bang, you know, it's a delusion. Yeah. I don't don't need anything to do what I do. I could do it while I'm using, sure, but I don't need it. And the kind of um, the way I'm wired, I can't use it. It's just like it's not, you know, I mean, the the obsession's gone. It's like, man, why would I want to poison myself, you know? But I didn't, you know, I was doing it with this big, I don't know, man, you know, like you're waving this fucking Jolly Roger and you think you're like, you know, it's all part of like, you know, Burroughs and Billy You know, it's part of, you know, you just kid yourself and you lie to yourself about um, thinking to be what could be an artist after like kind of uh with the lifestyle of, of like the guys that people that like, you know i think you love you, the most you know when you've come
2: to that realization that you're describing i feel like it's still got to take a lot of willpower superhuman willpower i'm very impressed by that
1: no it's not willpower it's the opposite is you surrender it's it's the total opposite of willpower wow. it's, it's not willpower you just surrender to the fact that i have no I can't drink and I can't drug because so I don't know how to explain it. It's like you, um, you know, like you go to Thanksgiving dinner or something and you sort of people and they're eating and they're drinking and they're, and they're eating and they finally say, Oh man, I had enough. Well, this feeling of I had enough, I don't have that feeling. So yeah. it's no, um, but once you, you come to terms with that and then that's it and you surrender to, it. but you need to help. You gotta, you gotta get outside yourself, forget the ego and say, can you help me? And there's plenty of help. I mean, for any of my brothers and sisters out there that are that are suffering under it or, you know, know that you feel you feel you want to change your fucking lifestyle. It's the help is out there. It's it's right there. It's it's right there. But you gotta reach out for it. You gotta surrender to it, and you gotta surrender to the help and and the help will be there. And you do it. Nobody got sober alone, man. Nobody, no one. No one did that. No one, no one man, no one manned up and 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 got toughened up and blah 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 and quit. That's that's, that's, that's i mean nobody I ever met.
2: I think that's that's the perspective you got to have on it. Sounds like you uh, see it very clearly, see it all with a lot of uh, a lot of clear retrospect. I'm trying to figure out where where do we leave off? We were we were going to the late '90s about um, the blackout, uh, which is I think an interesting yeah. in couple ways. Uh, I feel like every director kind of has in their head a sort of mental list of actors they would love to work with, and I was wondering if Dennis Hopper was on yours.
1: Yeah, you know. Um... I'm trying to think who was going to do that. That might have been Harvey. um, No, it was going to be Forrest Whitaker. Really? He was on my list. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. Anyway, Forrest was going to do that. And at the last minute, he couldn't. I think Julian Schnabel pulled that. Anyway, yeah, Dennis was, it was a wild ride with Dennis. I got to tell you, he was (laughs) really, you know. But, you know, at the time, he was sober. And, um, but he's still you know,
2: totally a character, right? I hear from everyone, even later on in life, that he was
1: still a complete, uh, very. Oh, no, he was outrageous. You know, I mean, he was. I can't even. You know, he was just so. <laughs> He was fun. He was fantastic, you know, but doing it with him. And, you know, he was like, he was fighting with Modine. He was fighting with me big time, you know. But but we started off like, oh, oh, I love to be in a movie and, uh, you know, I love your work and blah, blah, blah. And then we went through the film. He would, man, he was like, um, he was outrageous, but incredible in front of the camera, you know. That last scene he did, I I, I mean, I mean, it just is an example. So, you know, I guess, I don't know whether his method or whatever it was, because he was battling with Modine in the film. He was like, he di- he just didn't even deal with me and Matt. Like, me and Matt, we, you know, we're trying to make this fucking thing work, and we're figuring it out as we go along. And the last day of shooting was that last scene, and, um, you know, it was a scene, like, we did it, and it, it was like, it sucked, you know? And I'm thinking, holy shit, this is the finale of the movie. This fucking sucks. <laughs> you know, and we just didn't have the tools to fucking... Or I didn't at the time. But like I don't know, me and him couldn't figure. Dennis was just he wasn't too happy anyway. So I like say, okay, let's go to lunch, you know, which is the, that's what you do as a director when when you're up against. Only they go, well, we can't eat lunch another hour and a half. But anyway, we took a break. I'm there with Modena, and, and Dennis came up to us, and I'm thinking, finally, he's gonna help. We're gonna put our heads together and straighten this fucking scene out. And he looks at me and me and Maddie and he says, he says, you know, I'm not used to working like this. And if we do another fucking take like this, I'm on the next train out of here. (laughs) And then he walked away. (laughs) (laughs) But it was in act. I don't know. It was anyway. So the bottom line is we pull it together. We come back out. You know, every once in a while you do a take. And, um, you know, the crew just applauds. I mean, even me, You, you know, you just like we did like a long fucking take. And he was leaving that day, Dennis. This was it. Yeah. This was it. This was the end of the movie. If we didn't get this fucking, we were fucked. And man, he was so, I mean, it was just like why you make movies, you know? Maddie was in the fucking pocket and this cat. And this was all shit that he just, he just did. What these guys could do, they just take all the energy and all the ideas and everything and just crystallize it into something like, and you're watching it like you're watching a movie. They, the whole crew is, the whole crew is like, you know, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. This was one of those times. And then I didn't see him for three months and three months later, I didn't know what where this guy was going to be coming from with me. And he's hugging me and kissing me and telling me, wow, that was one of the great experiences. I love working you with know? <laughs> him he's awesome He he's he, he's 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 yeah cool, I mean, guy. he's really missed i wish um you know i got immense to him yeah. yeah anyway
2: the um other person i wanted to ask about who you started working with i think with the blackout definitely around this time was a uh, schoolie d who uh did a lot of the music for your movie oh, we
1: worked we, we we've been with schoolie since king of new york oh really oh, okay yeah for sure yeah his music is an all-in king of new york you know how did he's you two stuff. uh how did you two fall in together how did you guys meet you know, I, we were listening to rap. There was about you know old school rap stuff, and we had King of New York, and I'm listening all kinds of rap things, and I, and it was him. that, man, I connected with it, and uh, and then we started looking for him, and we couldn't find him. You know, I mean, if you put the word out, you want to use somebody's music in a feature film, to, you know, to be at your house the next day. It wasn't day. as easy as just like we could. Yeah, no, man, we went all over. It, it started getting almost like the Robert Johnson thing, where like, did anybody have? Has anybody ever actually seen the guy? You know. Then um yeah, we finally hooked up with him. And um yeah, he's everything you think. He's you know, he's a painter, he's an artist, he's a he's a brilliant dude, you know. I mean a brilliant dude, besides outside of the poetry, outside of the fucking music. I think it's, it's interesting you
2: know. how you've gotten along uh, with, with rappers about how it feels like there's a sort of a natural kinship or affinity there. Because you were with um, Ice-T in uh, Christmas, Our Christmas.
1: Yeah. Who's yeah, like right.
2: one of my favorite people of all time. I wanted to ask him uh, like, yeah. what he was like. How'd you and Ice get along? Same. Oh, there we go. Hey, you're back. You're back.
1: Okay. You can hear me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank All you. right. So we're talking about ice Yeah, talking about Ice-T. You know, I mean, okay. Uh, yeah, they're great poets to begin with. Okay, and they're, you know, politically aware and, and, you know, their work comes from that awareness of the community of where they're from, of what's what's happening. Yeah. Super smart guys and and, and, and musicians on top of it. And and, and then he's an actor, too. So, you know. So around this time,
2: I think we're coming up to one of your more explicitly sort of like focused on uh, religion films, which is Mary, uh, where Julia Pinoche plays the actress. Did you find that at this time your relationship to faith was evolving in such a way that you wanted to tackle this more like head on?
1: And I started that film thinking about, you know, the actors, you know, Hopper might have been one of them, you know, like his attitude on a set of like, you know, an actor who brings so much into a film, like what happens when the film ends. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, like, in, in Jerusalem, there's this thing about Mary Magdalene. People go there, there's like a whole cult of Mary Magdalene. It's, it's kind of a tourism. People walk around. Yeah. Yeah, but people, no, women go there believing they're Mary Magdalene or living the life of Mary Magdalene, going to those places and dealing with all, all of that. So the beginning of that film began there. You know, obviously we were uh, living in Italy. You know, I was living in the shadow of the fucking Vatican at the time. You know, we we're doing it. We did that film in Italy, and then we hooked up with Juliette, who was also working on a film about Mary Magdalene. Also, so we're bringing this script to her, and then she's doing that. And then, um, you know, the research for me is is the key. So you know, we're right there. You know, in Rome and. Um, you know the idea of who Jesus really was and, as a
2: person um, as a person who lived
1: yeah 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 Jesus as 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 a human being which i believe he was he lived you know and um not not the Jesus that was taught to me in Catholic school in the Bronx when, you know, who was beaten into me as a child. You know, Jesus is a man. And, um, and, you know, the idea that he was a rabbi and then he was married and Mary Magdalene was basically his wife, Mm. you know, and then the the Dead Sea Scrolls, these other gospels Mm. and reading them, the Gospel of Mary is part of that movie. You know, the fact that the political um, assault on women Probably for economic reasons, you know, ace them out of the the share of the economic pie. But, you know, take a woman who I would think was the wife of a rabbi and after three or four hundred years, turn her into a prostitute and then turn her into almost try to eliminate her from the whole fucking story Mm -hmm. when she was an essential part of the story. I mean, these guys. I don't believe there were twelve guys. You dig? It was a group okay. of people. There were women involved in that whole. I don't know why they got, you know, but it's you know sure. part of the whole political, you know, the whole social and political assault on on women, you know, from day one.
2: One thing we haven't uh, discussed too much is your acting work, your scattered acting roles. And uh, one of them that I did want to get to, which I, I, I thought was the wildest thing, was you were in Daddy Longlegs* that that Zafdi Rose directed back in 2009, sort of before they had mm-hmm. any sort of reputation. When they were right. just, you know, kind of pretty much kids, how did they convince you to be a part of this?
1: They paid me. <laughs> they paid me. <laughs> That's as good an answer. I mean, as I, I mean, they paid me. I know them. You know, I knew that. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna do whatever I can do to help people like that. To help anybody who's trying to make a movie, if I can, you know.
2: I think you know they're definitely yeah. making movies in your uh, in your the footprints you've left behind. I feel like they're following in your footsteps uh, in a lot of ways. In the way they see New York, and the way they see these kind of right.
1: characters. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, you know, they got the wrong thing, man. You know, they're, uh, you know, they come from a different kind of culture a little bit. They're younger than me. So, you know, they got the wrong thing going. Jews versus
2: Catholics, for one.
1: Well, that's one thing. Yeah, it's uh,
2: I mean, it's I guess it's surprising just seeing that they used to make these movies, Daddy Long Legs, when they made Heaven Knows What. It's a it's kind of shocking to see how much success they've uh, they've gotten along sort of
1: mainstream lines. Well, you know, they went to NYU, you know, they went the, 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 that route, you know, I mean, you, you go to NYU, you gotta, you're expected to do that, right? I mean, you're coming from a long line of um, very successful movie directors, yeah. Marty, Oliver Stone, John Mish, the Coen brothers, Spike, all of them, you know, so they let you into that? Pay all that money for an education. You better come out with something.
2: I think there's more honor in dropping out from NYU than actually graduating. You look at the list of graduates versus the list of dropouts, and I think you can go like blow for blow John Waters and Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, oh, yeah. So I think at the last phase of uh, the, the current phase of your career that we're getting up to now is the Willem Dafoe years, uh, which is stretched out over a lot of movies, but he's been taking the lead in the last few, which so many different things to talk about. I, the early films with Willem, I think it's incredible. He has this sinewy physique, this body that I feel like the camera just lingers on. Did you, did you see Willem as sort of a physical performer in these early years? And even I guess up until now, you know, the way the skin twists around his muscles seems to be like a subject of fascination
1: for the well, camera. I mean, you know, I mean, Tommaso, I mean, the guys, you know, hanging upside down and, you know, doing, you know, he's got a, it's not like, you know, Louis Walken was a dancer. I mean, Willow was a dancer, you know, coming from, you know, the the Wooster group and that kind of theater shit. That was such physical, you know, all kinds of physical acting and, you know, part of his physical discipline, you know, his spiritual practice too, you know, is, is you know, it's, I mean, the actor's got to, you know, I mean, the actor's got to be fucking you know how he moves is, is what the movie's about the
2: way uh i watch your movies i think it's mutual between the two you it's like you give each other a workout i feel like the material you write for him and then the way he does it for your direction it feels like you definitely put each other through your paces
1: yeah you know willem you know it, it... You know, within the bars on man, you know I mean, and no matter how high it is, he gets over it, so you better fucking man up and uh you know you better uh, yeah. you gotta match his energy and you gotta match his intensity and 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 that's good man that's that's good for me, it's good for everybody else on 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 the set,
2: so the new one that we're definitely gonna have to talk about today is uh Siberia, which is another willem Dafoe picture um right. I guess I wanted to start with just kind of one specific thing, uh, which I think I definitely catches on, which is that uh, this is a, a richly green movie. I feel like, um, I think, is that color grading and poster? How and what is the why of going
1: for that? Like that deep, all encompassing shade of green? Well, you talk about in the country stuff. Um, you know, his- we never used green. We, we, we hated green. I mean, it was a whole period. You know, Kel, Kenny always laughed about how we fucking yeah, we we're shooting street movies, city movies. You know, the color palette was black and blue. You know, green was like like you know a crucifix in front of a fucking vampire. But you know, you you I'm embracing. We're embracing the nature. You know, I was just trying to find those. You know, <laughs> this, the desert, the fucking snow the mountains, the cold, and then, you know, the forest, you know, like the forest, the way you remember as child reading fairy tales. It's sort you of Like, like, a, like a the enchanted the forest, you know. Right? you know what I mean? So, you know, Poloveni is the, the DP's Italian. He did Mary, he did Pasolini, you know, you know, we went to the places and we, and we, and, and we really, you know, searched for the locations and, and, and found yeah. them. So I guess uh,
2: what was the process of scouting locations like? Was this this was a shot in Russia or where? Ha, I guess
1: yeah, just no, we weren't know. anywhere near Russia. You know we we're in Siberia. Is, I mean, it's not has nothing to do with <laughs> Russia. Siberia is like a metaphor. For like exile Sure It was never Like so now When I read The, the little synopsis Everywhere Where it says A guy opens A bar in Russia I mean It's almost it makes me laugh I mean It's not He's not in Russia You know He's People right
2: He's right.
1: in lockdown He's in isolation He's far away You know right, I mean yep. He's in his own Personal You know Siberia is uh, You know The meaning of Siberia Is like A magical Mystical place Where you are sent Yeah Or where you are In egg- exile so um we shot in the in the the mountains you know the alps in northern italy i mean we were up there we were you know i mean we figured you know this isn't something we do but we're gonna do it this time so we got the we got the whole gang up on top of a fucking i mean way up there where it was fucking dangerous getting there and then you're shooting and fucking cold as shit but you know it's it's the only way to Find these kind of places and, and get them. You know, everything's real. You know, the dogs yeah. are real. The things are real. You know, some kind of crazy shots we we we've manipulated later on, but not to find the reality. You know, the reality we got. In the desert. We went to Mexico. We went to like you know, fucking Geronimo country, like where Arizona, the Arizona Mexican border, and yeah, we you know, we. we I think uh, your movie the uh, they, they invite a lot. Of
2: personal readings i think especially this one kind of in two big fronts as you talk about being in exile um you being in italy away from home of new york but then also this sort of a kind of movie about someone in repose who's like thinking back on his life his decisions he's made is that sort of an attitude that you find yourself in a lot these days reflecting on past decades uh
1: well, I mean, you know, the older you get, the more you got to, you know, to reflect back on, you know, so you can remember more. But, you know, I think we all live with memories and we live with our, uh, you know, with the regrets and, and with the, you know, the upside of the past, you know, and how you see and, and and, you know, what's really a dream and what's a memory and uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's a Buddhist, man, you know, I mean, one third of your life is spent to sleep. So, you know, I mean, it happens every year, you know, you wake up sometimes and your dream is more real than what you're fucking seeing when you open your eyes, you know? Yeah. And why shouldn't it be? Because if one third of your life is spent and then it for Buddhists, it's, it, there is no separation between our reality. It is it is our reality.
2: The. um One of the aspects of Willem being a physical actor, I think this is uh, another one in which we see him doing uh, full nudity, frontal nudity. I want to ask how you two approach these scenes. I'm sure that you two have worked together so long that you sort of have cordiality, maybe an understanding, like how how does that day on set, how does that play out?
1: You know, it plays out. We know what it's about. You know, we're talking about sex, like real, not like um, we're not, we're not talking censorship. We're not, worrying about, you know, above the belt or below the belt or whatever it's gonna be, you know. It's about you You're know his relationship about his relationships with women and um, you know, the actresses know what's happening. Everybody's cool. Nobody's gonna get fucking out of line. Willem is as naked as anybody else on a set. Because it's gonna be that's what's gonna be. And right. um and that's what makes him um because you gotta make it real. Sure. At the end of the day, you gotta make it real. And um The sexuality has got to be filmed, you know, in a very sensitive, you know, I was, I learned to make films watching very sexually free filmmakers and and movies that dealt with sensuality, sexuality in a big time open way. And it was a, per, you know, it wasn't. Like this, even idea of censorship. Of, this is
2: uh, a this is probably the thing that frustrates me most about the American cinema today. That it has like really been drained of any sort of like developed, sophisticated sexuality. Like that.
1: yeah, well, there's nothing below the belt, and you know those movies, man. So you forget it. But um, you know, Siberia is a different thing.
2: So last thing I, I want to ask about just while we still got time here on the clock for, for zeros and ones uh, are you are anticipating festival premiere later this year is that the the idea? We're going to
1: be in La, we're going to go to Lucano we're going to take it to Lucano Can you
2: tell us a little bit about the film I really I, I haven't even heard much about it I haven't seen it I don't, I don't know too much
1: It's a war movie you know Ethan Hawke is, uh, is playing the lead about American, uh, Americans in uh, Rome it has to do with the pandemic but it doesn't it has to do with the, the war movies has to do with the, you know, the idea of a city under siege.
2: Definitely of, of this time, but then also sort of, is this set in a period? Is this a...
1: No, it's not set in a period. It's it's set in, like, you know, a... Um, today's reality with a movie over... Embellishments
2: gratitude. with some, yeah. Was... You know, like
1: a kind of a World War II B-Movie feel to it, you know, when we kind of approached it, or I p- approached it from those kind of espionage movies from you, you know what I mean with the yeah. partisans and the collaborators and and a city of the siege and the and the uh, you know that sounds, sounds very good it is okay you gotta see this movie yeah this is, I gotta check it out crazy. Yeah. I
2: um I I think that that is just about it for me. You have been like so generous with with your time and your stories today. It's been a real pleasure man.
1: No thanks bro. Okay thanks everybody everybody playlist be cool everybody yeah. out there. Wow. Okay. Wow. All right. I don't think like that. But I hope New
0: York Film Festival like zeros and ones. Okay. A lot of love yeah. to everybody. Cheers. Take it easy. Okay. okay. So that was it—an epic marathon between playlist contributor Charles Burmesco and Abel Ferrara. I'll be back soon with um, some interviews soon. I don't have a run like I just did with you know three pods in a row, but I should be cooking up something soon. Um, I hope you listen to the Edgar Wright and Sparks podcast too because that's a good one. Um, again, Deep Focus is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, um, includes Be Real, the Playlist Podcast, the regular one, the discourse, the fourth wall. You can find us on iTunes, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate us, share a comment, share it with a friend, tell a friend. Thank you for listening and all that good stuff. Okay, that's it. Good night or good day, depending where you are and peace. Free Britney. Bye.